0: There's nothing like the book of Ecclesiastes to make you want to stall out on that thanks be to God bit, right? You kind of want to put a question mark there instead of an exclamation point. Thanks be to God? I think. (laughs) Well, uh, especially the end of the passage, you know, what's all that stuff about women supposed to mean anyway? Well... Just give it a minute, we'll get there, but it's at the end of the passage, so stay awake. You're going to have to wait uh, till the end. Before I start, though, we had a tech issue with one of the baptism videos, so if you guys want to play that, go ahead and roll it before I get started. That would be great.
1: Hi, my name is Claire Keaton. I became a Christian at a very young age, and that is mainly because of my parents, who are strong and devoted christians and have encouraged all of my siblings um to become christians and that and told us the importance of christ in our lives and um that he's always there to look out for us and he's always providing for us even when we feel like we have what we need but he's got something better in mind for us Um, i want to be baptized because i want to take that next step in my relationship with god Something my mom has said a lot is that God is the perfect parent, which I knew, but I didn't really think about it that much. And something that I love about my parents is that while they're my authority, they're also my friends. And I feel like I see God as more as my authority, and I don't see that friendship relationship that much, and I want to work on that because it's something I love about my parents that they are there to encourage us and they're there for us and they love us and I love that and I feel like I forget I'm so busy trying to follow everything the Bible says that I forget that God's also my friend like I have to obey him but I can also have that relationship with him and I feel like baptism can is my next step to think about that more and to show others that that God is my friend while he's my authority he's also. That's
0: that so cool to see so many from student ministry, too. That makes me really, really happy. It's awesome. Uh, one other bit of church family news that I'm happy to share with you all is we'll soon have a new staff member joining us in the role of our outreach and missions minister. Uh, so Tyler and Lauren Pegues and their three kids, Peyton, Holland, and Dean, are Northwake, Far Flung's who have been serving with the International Mission Board for about 10 years now. Now, they're currently in Thailand, they're finishing their third term with the board, and after a lengthy season of much prayer and consideration uh, with myself and our elders, uh, Tyler and Lauren believe that God's leading them here to North Wake, where Tyler will help lead our church in local outreach and international missions. And I believe Tyler has just the right mix um, of passion and skill and experience for this dual, like, local and international outreach focus. Um, He thrives as a trainer and equipper of others. He has a heart for seeing people come to know Jesus, and he understands the international mission scene really well. So Tyler and Lauren will be a gift to our church in this area. Uh, This was a really heavy decision for them to bring their family back to the U.S. after 10 years overseas, so please be in prayer for them. And get ready to welcome them with open arms here. Uh, they'll be arriving in Wake Forest in early July, where they'll be getting settled in. And then Tyler will officially start chopping wood here with us in mid to late August sometime. So I'll follow up with some uh, information in an email this week. But one other way that you would consider joining me and serving this family as they move here is by giving them a love offering to help with the unique challenge of restarting life in the U.S., after serving for over a decade overseas, or almost a decade overseas. They really are starting over here, and so while some of their moving costs are covered, it doesn't really come close to all that it takes to move a family of five and rebuild your life in the United States. So, if you would prayerfully consider that, uh, just keep a lookout for my email that'll be coming again early this week. So, exciting stuff. Yeah, awesome, thank you, Daniel. Uh, Let's continue through our study. I just, I know that woo anywhere, you know. (laughs) Um, Let's continue through our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of the wisdom books in the Bible. It's a wisdom, it's a book of reflection on life and some direction on life and what life is all about. So Ecclesiastes, you might think of this book as kind of like a river rafting guide. It's trying to keep us off of some rocks on this one side of the river and also some other rocks on the other side of the river. Anybody ever gone rafting? You have a guide that tells you some stuff to do, right? Everybody, two strokes on the left, right? Okay, that was enough. One stroke on the right. And Ecclesiastes wants to keep us in the middle of the river, particularly as we navigate some class five rapids today. Rapids of death, wisdom, and righteousness. So the teacher, he wants to tell us how to navigate death, how to navigate wisdom, and how to navigate righteousness. And he'll thread the needle between each of these rapids, between two extremes that people tend to crash on. So let's get started. First, how to navigate death. He says, a good name, verse 1, is better than precious ointment. And then this is a surprise. And the day of death than the day of birth. You know, it's better to have, he's saying, it's better to have the kind of reputation that doesn't make people's stomach churn when you walk in the room than to smell great. Smelling nice is good too, but it's not as good as having a, a good reputation. But you don't expect the day of death to be better than the day of birth. So what does he mean? He goes on. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for the man, for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. So what are we to do with death? How do we navigate it? There's generally two responses or sets of rocks that you can crash into, Uh, One is that most people want to escape death, to avoid it, to not think about it, don't bring it up, laugh it off, whether that's uh, through TV or alcohol or burying yourself in your work or weekend parties or hobbies or whatever it takes to distract yourself from the unpleasant reality that we will all die. So if that's one side, I guess the other side would basically just be to throw your hands up in despair, you know, and get really depressed, wonder what is the point of it all? If it's all over so soon, it's all gonna end, Why does it matter? Maybe you felt this, uh, if not about life and death, maybe you felt this in micro form. You know, when you get a few days of vacation or you get Christmas break and you get all grumpy and you're like, it's going to go by so fast anyway, it doesn't even matter. What's the point? You can't even enjoy the break because you know it's going to be over so soon, and so you, you despair. But Ecclesiastes says, no, there's a third option that is neither of these. And that is, in light of your death, learn to live wisely. Death can be our teacher, or as one writer said it, death is an evangelist. And in this sense, he means that it's better to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting. That was verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. His point is that a funeral is a better teacher than a party. A funeral teaches you that you will not last forever, that you will someday be the one in the box. And so you better think about that. You better take it to heart. That's better for you overall as a person. Now, I don't know how to talk much more about this section of the book without getting uh, personal. And you're all gonna think by the end of this that I am just the most morbid person in the world, but I'm not, okay? At least I don't think I am. (laughs) But so I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. There's all this historic stuff, uh, but there's one place that's kind of a historic attraction, which I guess tells you how much Savannah has going for it, but it's, it's Bonaventure Cemetery. There's a cemetery, famous cemetery. And my dad would take our family out there every now and then on a Sunday afternoon, especially in the spring. Uh, you see some azaleas in the picture, they are beautiful. But as a kid, I did not appreciate this little trip through the graveyard at all. It was weird. It was creepy. And it was boring, worst of all, you know. And so the first time I heard this verse that I'm quoting to you from Ecclesiastes was my dad quoting it to me, slash at me, to defend his decision for taking us through a walk in Bonaventure. He's like, you know, the Bible says it's better to go to a graveyard than to a party. I'm like, okay, dad, if you say so, you know. But years later, I found out that he was right. And Ecclesiastes became very meaningful to me. Uh, it's not exaggerating to say that this book changed my life. At age 15, I found myself significantly depressed, wondering what in the world life was about. And at some point my parents figured out they were living with a depressed teenager. I don't think it takes that long to figure it out, but maybe sometimes it does if you're like me and you can hide it decently. Well, my dad pointed me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now I didn't understand a lot of the book and I didn't get all my questions answered, but I did find out that someone else was asking the same questions. And if the Bible could speak to my life at this level, it might also have some answers for me if I kept reading it. So I did. Now around that time, I've talked about this before, but my grandparents also bought into a funeral business. And I would help them out from time to time. And I attended a lot of funerals as a teenager. And I saw a lot of dead bodies. Again, you think I'm like a totally morbid person, but through this season of sadness in my life, I was forced to listen to death as a teacher. And it helped me as a young man to sober up to life and to realize that I wanted to live my life in a way that mattered. And I found that there can be a gladness of heart that comes on the other side of the sadness of face of contemplating death. So to this day, and I know at this point, you are definitely gonna diagnose me with morbidity, but I don't really care, it's too late now. Uh, I keep this photo in the corner of my desktop. It's just like a stock photo from Google, but I had it as my wallpaper for a bit. Uh, it just kind of shocked people when I would open my computer. They're like, Whoa, you know, is everything okay? And, but so now it's just, it's just a photo in the corner, but I'll sometimes click it open when I'm working or getting ready to work. And I will listen to the teacher. When this is me in the coffin, what will my life amount to? What will those I loved say? Will I have lived this life well? Will my family be able to testify to my generosity, to my kindness, to my love for God and for others? What will they say? Or will they only comment on, like, my hobbies? He he really liked watching baseball, that dad, you know. This isn't escapism, and it's not despair. It's wisdom. And it's a wisdom that I think is uniquely available in Christianity, Because if you're a Christian, you don't have to be afraid of death so you can stop and learn from it. The Christian gospel, it gives you unparalleled resources to deal with your death day. The gospel says, yes, death is real and it's coming for all of us. So wise up. You have this life to live and this life and all the stuff you do and it really does matter. But that's not all. Christ has died He has risen again, so for all who trust in him, death is not the final act in the play. It's only a brief intermission. There's a resurrection coming where nothing true and nothing good is finally lost. I just don't know of any other religion or belief system that allows you to both embrace this life with purpose, not escape it, and prepare for the next life without fear. And I don't think this will make you morbid. I think it will keep you from becoming superficial in a superficial age. Learning from the funeral makes you a person of depth and gravity. David Gibson writes, Only someone who knows how to weep will really know what it means to laugh. Have you ever ever met a person like this? They're actually fully alive, engaged with the world and their family and the goodness of creation because they know they have it all on loan. It's a gift. And that one day God will simply call time, But when he does, they are ready to go. So he asked, these are good questions for you to reflect on today. Will you let death teach you the limitations of your life? Will you let it reshape your goals, your attitudes, the things that you long for and work for and pray for and hope for the most? For if death is not your Lord and it does not own you and never ever can be if you are in Christ, then it can teach you. So, I don't know. Maybe your homework, your takeaway this week is to literally take a few walks through a graveyard sometime and learn. Ecclesiastes wants to help us navigate death. So, that's the first set of rapids. <laughs> the next, uh, navigating wisdom. What does it mean to navigate wisdom? So, here, the teacher is going to give us both some wisdom for living. But he's also going to caution us on how much we can fully understand about life. Wisdom has limits, he's going to say. And the truly wise person knows this and doesn't, the truly wise person doesn't think they know everything, right? So on one side, you have rocks of like overconfidence. That's one set of rocks you can crash on. The other set, uh, again, would be something like despair. Well, forget it. If I can't know everything about the world, I can't know anything. We can't really know anything in life because he'll say you really can learn some things about life and wisdom. He gives you a few. Maybe one of these will resonate with you particularly. He starts with this, verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. He teaches you about wisdom. He says the wise person has to protect their wisdom. It doesn't come in stainless steel. Again, David Gibson says wisdom can rust. So even wise people can be bought with a bribe or corrupted. So you must guard your wisdom Don't be driven into madness by the temptation of money or power. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. Wise people take the long view of things. They don't just start a whole bunch of things and never finish them. Verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So the wise person doesn't let anger hang around in their heart. They're slow to anger. Verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. This one's interesting. The wise person is not controlled by nostalgia. They're not always pining for the past. Because the wise person knows that, first of all, the past probably had its own problems that we tend to gloss over when we look back on it. We forget about the hard things in the past. Secondly, pining for the past diminishes the fact that God is at work in the present right now and bringing all things into accord with his future plan and then third the wise know that what their heart most deeply longs for in a wave of nostalgia is not actually the past but it's the future with god because even if you could go back to that happy fireside or the hundred acre wood that you played in as a child it wouldn't be the same The stabs of longing that you feel as you remember the happiness that you had in former days are what C.S. Lewis said, only the echo, only the scent of a flower we've not found. The echo of a tune we've not heard. News from a far country we've not yet visited. So nostalgia, it can be your teacher too if you will listen carefully to it and learn that your true home lies ahead, not behind. Verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Verse 19, I skipped down. So wisdom can protect you in life, like money in your bank account. If your car breaks down, you get a large medical bill, it does kind of help to have some money. But wisdom is better than that. Verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So the wise person realizes they've said things about others behind their backs that they would be embarrassed if it got out, or they've said things in anger about others. And so they don't take what people say about them too seriously. So all that wisdom that he just gave you, it's important for living. Our rafting guide calls out several strokes on the wisdom side of the raft to help you learn how to navigate life in wisdom. But then the teacher is also going to give some strokes on the other side of the raft. He's going to say, but don't think that you can get everything figured out by wisdom. Look back at verse 13. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Which doesn't mean like morally crooked, but it means... Confusing. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom, I said. I will be wise, but it was far from me. This part sounds like a Lord of the Rings quote or something from one of the elves. That which has been is far off and deep. Very deep, who can find it out? (laughs) You can't unscramble life's deepest mysteries, he's saying. God has some things encrypted that you can't hack. Now this kind of goes against our grain as modern scientific people. We believe that science will eventually unlock everything there is to know about the universe. One science reporter put it like this, after a century of discoveries that opened the cosmos to our gaze, Astronomers are now poised to uncover the universe's most fundamental properties, its size, age, origin, and destiny. And what's fun about that is that quote was said in 1999, and I still don't think we figured it all out. Uh, Caleb Swarf, who's a director of astrobiology at Columbia University in New York, notes that we still don't know, scientifically, One, why the universe exists. Two, what dark matter or dark energy really are. Three, whether life exists anywhere else. Four, the quantum world, despite what Ant-Man and his adventures would tell you. Uh, Five, how the earth really works. We haven't really gone that far in. Six, how our own biology fully works, hence why you still get colds and such. Now, much of this may be discovered one day, and that's great. The Christian view of science Um, make science a worthy and exciting endeavor. But there are some things that cannot be discovered, only revealed. Uh, John Lennox cleverly explains the scope and the limits of science or wisdom like this. He says, let's imagine that Aunt Matilda has made a beautiful cake and we take it along to be analyzed by a group of the world's top scientists. The biochemists will inform us about the structure of proteins, fats, etc. in the cake. The physicists will be able to analyze the cake in terms of fundamental particles. And the mathematicians will no doubt offer us a set of elegant equations to describe the behavior of those particles. We've been given a description of how the cake was made and how its various ingredients relate to each other. But suppose now I ask the assembled group of experts a final question. Why was the cake made? The grin on Aunt Matilda's face shows that she knows the answer, for she made it for a purpose. But all the scientists in the world will not be able to answer the question, and it's no insult to their disciplines to state their incapacity to answer it. Their disciplines cannot answer the why questions connected with the purpose for which the cake was made. In fact, the only way we shall ever get an answer is if Aunt Matilda reveals it to us. Some things cannot be discovered, only revealed by God himself. And while the teacher of Ecclesiastes is left guessing how God might straighten what is crooked in the world, how he would unscramble the puzzle of life, we don't have to guess quite as much. God would later reveal perhaps the deepest mystery of the universe. The New Testament calls it his secret plan by entering creation himself as a man to redeem us by his death and resurrection. Jesus is called in the New Testament, God's mystery, his secret, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is how we navigate wisdom. You can learn some things, you can't learn everything, but you can learn the most important things. And that is what Jesus brings us. Okay, last, navigating righteousness. Navigating death, navigating wisdom, navigating righteousness. Verse 15, in my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Okay, what is this all about? Like, is the Bible advocating that you be just a little wicked? You know, moderate your righteousness and your wickedness. Try to find a healthy sin-life balance, you know? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's advocating for neither of these ways of living because there's a consequence attached to both, as you hear in the passage. If you're what it it called overly righteous or overly wise, it sounds like you'll destroy yourself in some way. But also, if you're overly wicked and give yourself over to just whatever you want, you'll be destroyed in another way. So what does this mean? I don't think anyone's captured this better than Tim Keller, who recently passed away. And if you've listened to more than like three of my sermons, you know, he's had a big influence on on me. I appreciate him a ton. But Keller was keen to point out there's essentially three ways to live your life. And he gets these from Jesus' uh, parable of the prodigal son. You know, the first way here is what the teacher calls overly wicked, where you just give yourself to whatever yourself wants to do. You throw off the chains of oppressive religion or morality and you embark on a journey of self-discovery, pleasure, you decide what's right and what's right for you. But there's another way to live that's also a dead end. This is the way of self-righteousness, rigid moralism, where like the older brother in Jesus' story, your identity is found in keeping all the rules and thus being so much better than all those other sinners. You know. But you see, this too is really another way of just serving yourself. Because at the end of the story, you'll try to manipulate the father into blessing you because of all the ways you're not as bad as everyone else. This too is a sure way to destroy yourself. Because the end of that road just leads to you being a proud bigot that looks down on everyone else. And this ultimately leaves you bitter with God too, doesn't it? Because at some point you'll see him as an old codger who never gave you what he owed you for all your faithful years of service to him. And I think this is the overly righteous way of living that the teacher is warning us about. It's a way of living that's exhausting, always trying to measure up and measure yourself up. But the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, the teacher says. There's a third way somehow through these rapids, a different way to approach God on his own terms with his own grace freely offered in Jesus Christ. But I'm getting just a little ahead of myself as much as I would like to go there right now. We still need to deal deal with our charges of misogyny before we land the plane. So back to verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out, to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that's madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay, so what does this mean? Is the teacher saying that men are just ever so slightly better than women, one out of a thousand better, or that women are out to ensnare unsuspecting men. No, the teacher's main point is found back in verse 22, where he says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth, a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. That's his main point. It's confirmed by verse 29, which you just heard him say, This alone I found. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. But the teacher goes to add a fine point on things from his own perspective. This is not an inaccurate perspective, though it is an incomplete perspective. This was written by a man, a king. And perhaps here he's speaking from his own experience. You know, it's interesting that King Solomon acquired for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines for a total of... A thousand women. Which the Bible, by the way, doesn't like applaud him for this. It portrays it as deeply problematic. I can't help but wonder if Solomon would have had better luck with women if he had just stayed with one instead of going for a thousand. But you could just as easily make a similar point about human sinfulness from a woman's point of view. Kind of like in the Tenth Commandment, right? It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or house or oxen. We apply that also to women not coveting their neighbor's husbands. Or when Jesus says, it's a sin to look upon a woman lustfully, he's not implying that, well, it's okay to look at men lustfully, right? It works both ways. So if you were to flip this verse around to a female perspective, it could go something like this, and I find more bitter than death, the man who is an iron fist and whose heart is arrogant and whose feet are steel boots. The woman who fears God will escape him, but the sinner he will crush. What my soul seeks I have not found. I have found one woman among a thousand, but a man among all these I have not found. Now, doesn't that feel much easier to read in our cultural moment today? (laughs) But both perspectives are true. And I think the teacher's point stands. It is more bitter than death when either a man who's made to reflect God's image uses his strength and charisma to become an arrogant tyrant And it's more bitter than death when a woman who is in some ways the crown jewel of the creation story uses her beauty or her guile to capture and control others. You see, the Bible is an equal opportunity offender of men and women. But God is also an equal opportunity redeemer the Apostle Paul will pick up on this section, this section of Ecclesiastes, and he'll use it in his indictment of all humanity in Romans chapter three. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And yet he'll go on to say, that now God has shown us a way to be made right or righteous with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago we are made right or righteous with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us righteous, right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, so people are made right or made righteous with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. How do you navigate righteousness? How do you stay off of either the side of overt, selfish wickedness or the other side of petty, proud self-righteousness? There's good news. In Jesus Christ and only in him can you have a righteousness given to you apart from your works and your striving to be righteous. And yet also only in Jesus can you have a righteousness that's great enough to cover all your wickedness. And to bring about a change of heart such that you long to fear God and honor him with this brief life that we have under the sun. Let's pray. So Lord, we do give you thanks for your word. Even though there is much that causes us, um, causes us to pause and think. There's much that's hard for us to hear, and yet it's your good word for us. So would we be good students of it today? Would we listen to what the teacher of this book was saying and through that to listen to the true teacher, Jesus Christ, who tells us of the coming day of our death and how we can be ready, who tells us how to navigate this life with all the complexity that it requires, and who tells us that we can have a righteousness that's not of our own, but is given to us. So we thank you for your word. May we live in accord with it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we dismiss, I uh, always encourage all of you after our service is in, doesn't mean our time of ministry is over. If there's things that you're thinking about or things you're learning from today, you should talk about them with people who are around you. It's a great way to make small talk. Uh, but if you would like to talk with a pastor or leader, if you have just questions you want to ask or you have some needs for prayer, we'll be up here as soon as we dismiss. So uh, come on up. And also, there's I don't know if we mentioned this in the service, but if you're new here, Uh, There's a meet and greet like right in the lobby when you first step out. So if you have more questions about our church, when we get connected with some of the classes and whatever we have on Sunday morning, just stop at the meet and greet right on your way out. There'll be some folks there to talk to you as well. So let's be dismissed with this. There's another verse to that song that I think the teacher of Ecclesiastes would really like. And it goes like this, and I'll use it as our benediction. May we love you in life, Jesus. May we love you in death. And may we praise you for as long as you give us breath. And may we say, when the death dew lies cold on our brow, if ever we loved you, our Jesus is now. Thank you for your love, Jesus. We love you. You're dismissed.